Hi, welcome to The Brook. My name is Muchi Ukebo. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Honored and excited that we could connect together in this way for this moment. Man, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is where we're going to be, specifically uh, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The words will be on the screen so that we could track through the text together. We are in the series, A People. A People where we are working through the marks that mark us and move us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God. We're working through the value statements, the values that should describe, define, and ultimately drive us, drive everything that we do. They serve as vehicles for our growth personally and collectively. And so this week and next, we will continue to work through the value that we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. We become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known that there's this wholeness that God desires for us. Wholeness that is at the very center of shalom, this robust picture of peace that is not primarily the absence of certain things, but it is the presence of certain things and the presence of certain things in their right place. That as you look at the complexity of life, the variety of domains we exist in, the pieces of life, if you will, to have shalom is for the pieces to fall in place, to fit together rightly as they should be. Pieces and things regarding how we relate to God, regarding how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others. Shalom. And God wants that for us. He's not bashful regarding that, nor is he bashful that there's this experience of wholeness personally that is utterly inseparable from our corporate connectedness. Thus, we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. We had to reimagine family for that to take place. That's why we started there, because family is the environment reflecting the relationships where love is expressed most fully. And love is necessary to have that courage to risk vulnerability, to have that security to step forward. Here's who I am, the real uh, me. And God looks at his people. He says, hey, you aren't play cousins. This isn't an illustration This is your identity, family. I'm your father and your brothers and sisters with Christ. Reimagine family and then realign accordingly. We're family. But within our family is a collision of stories. In fact, every individual everywhere is a collision and collection of stories. People are collections of stories, stories that are built on values and beliefs and experiences, stories that even reflect internalized narratives, which is themes and belief systems that we build our identity on and that we even build our life from, that those are stories that that shape us, that we collect, that become part of who we are, history, culture, All of this collide into story form, shaping us. And if we are going to move towards wholeness, we have to explore the stories. This isn't new. This is known. That's why even Lauren Hill, 
how you're going to win when you ain't right within, right? Like, ah, uh-uh, come again. I mean, there's a sense to where we know that to, to be whole, we got to deal with some stuff. And if we're going to deal with some stuff, we need to explore the stories at work. Now, again, this isn't new. This is known. But there's generations where this dynamic is increased. And ours is one of those generations. But this isn't primarily social psychology, this is basic humanity. And and while there's this heightened emphasis on it now in terms of self-discovery, that's a beautiful thing. And we need to affirm that and live in light of that. But there is something we need to be aware of, something broken in that where it's not just this emphasis, it's this unhealthy elevation where self-discovery becomes ultimate. But self-discovery really is a vehicle and a necessary component for vibrant spirituality. Augustine, one of the early church fathers and heroes, brought this out. He says, how can we draw close to God when we're so far from our own selves? We got to explore the stories at work within us so that we can move more thoughtfully towards wholeness, more thoughtfully towards each other, more thoughtfully towards the God who is. Now, this is where Luke 3 becomes rich and powerful for us. Luke 3 contains the genealogy of Jesus. And a genealogy is a family history. It is a collection of stories told from generation to generation. And within genealogy, you start to see dominating themes that drive people within the family. Jesus' genealogy is similar in that sense, but it's utterly unique also because he's God. <laughs> First and foremost, because he's, he's God. So we are getting the story of God. But it's unique in the sense that within the genealogy, we're seeing how God is relating to a unique group of people as a reflection of how he wants to relate to us. So there's so much that we can learn. First and foremost, it should move us to marvel, to stand in awe. It should cause us to worship. But then it should cause us to consider some things by exploring the stories at work within the story of God. And that's actually going to be the flow of our time. I, I, I really just want to look at Luke 3 in a way where we can just pull out some general observations that I think should move us immediately to worship. And then we're going to take a deep dive into two stories in particular and just see some of the dynamics and how they're a mirror of some of the dynamics at work at us. And so if we look at some of these general observations, we do a deep dive into some of these stories They should move us to worship and then be more meaningful in how we explore our own. So that'll be the flow of our time. And then we'll close uh, with some considerations. Read with me uh, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse um, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, uh, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Matt, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joesh, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, 
the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elkim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphax, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The genealogies are the part of the scripture that we skip over, but man, they're so saturated. They're loaded with information that invites us to marvel at God. Now, the genealogy of Jesus is contained both in Matthew and Luke, and there is a tension between the two. And I bring that out for honesty's sake, integrity's sake, but then also because we need to know that God invites us to run to the tension, not to run away from it. Whenever we experience tension with God generally or through the scripture specifically, we are invited to run to the tension because in doing so, what we see is God meets us in ways that often remove the tension and he remains with us regardless because he wants us relationally connected to him. One of the ways in which I think we can remove the tension of what seems to be the conflict is by seeing the aim of each gospel. Whereas in Matthew, he is writing to a distinctly Jewish audience that has been waiting, anticipating the coming of a messianic king through the line of David. You just see the emphasis of that from Matthew 1 to 28. And so it stands to reason that the focus of the genealogy is going to trace Jesus's divinic lineage. And so you get Abraham to David to Jesus. Now, Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience. In fact, he's writing to a non-Jewish person, Theophilus. And so in Luke and Acts, you see some of that, that he's explaining some Jewish customs and norms uh, for Theophilus' sake, for all sake, who aren't uh, Jewish. And what he's trying to do is not just explain, but he's trying to argue that Jesus is the savior of not just the Jews, but of all humanity. And so in his genealogy, you get Jesus to Adam, the start of humanity, 72 generations. That's how I've been able to resolve the tension. And hopefully that helps you resolve the tension as well. But what also we should see in the genealogies is that they actually don't exist to prove the divinity of Jesus as much as they exist to celebrate his humanity and to celebrate how God is working through history to move us to marvel, some observations we can make is first and foremost, there's about 75% of the people here that we didn't even know as I was butchering the names through reading them. Even if you're a Bible scholar, you're like, man, I know that person. I know that person, but you didn't know them all. And that's, that's beautiful because first of all, that's a critique. 
That is a critique against the tendency to attach personal significance to public notoriety. That we have a tendency to believe that the more we're known by the masses instead of the few, the more significant we become. And this is a critique towards that. But it's also a call to worship because God sees these people that we could have picked out from a lineup. He sees them and knows them. People easily overlooked, not even given a second glance. He knows their story. He sees it. He's like, but yeah, I want to actually weave it into mine. You are going to be a linchpin for my lineage and how I'm working throughout history. He's worth worship and marveling at. There's another observation to be made, and it is that 72 generations, that there are 72 generations waiting for Jesus. So Genesis 1, you get God's announcement of this good and glorious plan for all of humanity and history, a plan where he relates to humans with intimacy, a plan where there's intimacy in how other humans relate to each other, a plan where there is significance and purpose into how we live out in the world around us, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, flood it, subdue it, bring beauty out of what is rough and rugged in the same way I brought beauty out of chaos, bring rest in the same way that you experience it with me. It's this glorious plan and life relationship, weight and beauty that is guided by God's generosity and guided by his word. You could take and eat freely of everything that you see. It's for you, but this tree, You cannot eat from it, not because I'm withholding something from you, but because I genuinely want something for you, life. And if you eat from this tree, not only will you be dishonoring me, but you will die. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve deceived, disregard and reject God, dishonor him and eat and they die immediately and decisively in a spiritual sense. They die, but they will eventually die physically. God seeing this, seeing the stain of sin and the brokenness thereof, he doesn't want that for them. He doesn't want that for humanity. So he steps in and even in the midst of announcing judgment, because he's not a liar, he also gives this promise, man, The serpent that deceived you will be dealt with, that I will deal with the enmity between you and me by dealing with the serpent that caused it and all of the expressions thereof, that there will be a seed that will bruise the head of the serpent. So he is going to deal a decisive blow to this real enemy. But in doing so, his heel will be bruised. So he is going to receive a wound, but he is going to recover from it. This is the gospel. This is Jesus hanging on a cross, dealing with death, with sin, and with Satan decisively. Defeating death through his own death. But it was a wound that he recovered from. He resurrected. This is the gospel 
announced that they were living in light of it. So even how they named their children, you get to Noah, God gives rest. And he says, will this finally be the seed to restore that which was lost? They lived in light of it, waiting eagerly for 72 generations. God was faithful among them. And it's rocking me because waiting produced angst. It produces angst because we're aware of human fragility. We, we know that we messed stuff up. Yet they didn't have the power to thwart the plan of God. We see God preserving his promise through wicked people. We don't know 75% of them, but the 25% we do know, my God. I'm, and, and yet through rebellious hearts, he preserved his plan. And even the birth of Jesus was was in, it wasn't in peace, it was in war and through, <sighs> yet he preserved his plan. The 75% that we don't know highlights the attentiveness of God. The 72 generations highlights God's keeping, preserving power together. They move us to worship him, to stand in awe and marvel at the God who is working in human history. But his work in human history is on the hearts of humans. It's through stories. And so not only do we marvel, but now we get to see the mirror by looking at a few of us, like looking at the stories, the stories that reveal beauty and brokenness and how God is working in the midst. So so beauty, you get that where you where you see this the son of of, of David, the, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah. And and people, we, we love to talk about David, understandably so. But then there's so much beauty in Boaz and the collection of stories that are colliding there that Boaz is highlighted in the book of Ruth. And through the book of Ruth, we are told about this courageous love that is expressed by an immigrant woman that in the midst of tremendous suffering and difficulty, she doesn't give in, she doesn't cave, rather she clings to God and she clings to sincere friendship and love. And as that love is being unfolded, she runs into this man, Boaz, who stands to redeem her from the difficulty thereof and invite her into a family that Boaz is this reflection of redeeming generosity and love. And he goes the distance, the extra mile for her. He protects her. He serves her. And then he marries her in love. This foreigner, this immigrant, he crosses this cultural barrier in love. And as rich and powerful as that is, his acts towards her, it shouldn't surprise us because of who his mom is, Rahab. And in Rahab, if you're familiar with her story, she was this prostitute, foreign woman who believed in God. Her life was changed forever. And in Joshua chapter six, it talks about how she was able to dwell with the people of Israel as she lived. She was a foreigner still, yet she wasn't taken advantage of. Boaz's dad saw her, 
cross this cultural barrier in love for her. And there's so much in the story that's beautiful that we just get to see and that we should, we should think about as we explore our own stories, which is one, like how things start doesn't necessarily have to be how or where they end. That Rahab's story started off with broke, I mean like sex work. I mean, that was her story. Yet she's tied to the lineage of Christ, Ruth's story in tremendous brokenness and suffering. Yet she was redeemed and provided for and experienced generosity and love. Where things and how things start doesn't necessarily have to be where or how they end. But there's other beautiful things we see here because, listen, we do teach what we know. We could talk a good game, but we are going to reproduce who we are in the relationships that are most connected to us. And so it's not crazy that Boaz having this father and this mother who has such a powerful story of cross-cultural redeeming love that goes the distance will go and do the same in such such a powerful story causes us to reflect and say, what are the beautiful things that I will pass on to those most connected to me that reflect the beauty and glory of the God who is, I got to explore stories because they're at work in my life, but there's not just stories at work that, that have beauty, man. There's some stories at work where we could trace some, some brokenness. Listen, we could trace beauty in every single story because God is kind. But man, while it may be difficult to trace beauty, it ain't that hard to trace brokenness. And so you get to another person in here, Judah. Judah. Now, Judah's story is, I mean, and a collection of stories thereof told through the book of Genesis. Like even him personally, man, he 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 had he was a unrighteous man acting unrighteously out of fear. Yet there was this transformation to where he acted righteously and justly in faith. And what's beautiful is even what's said about him is, yo, listen, the rod will not depart from your house. There is going to be future generations of kings leading to this king, Christ. It's rich. But there is, uh, I mean, there, he is surrounded by brokenness and dysfunction. You just have to look at his family. <laughs> I mean, and so Genesis 29 gives us pictures of the family dynamics at work. And man, you is it the scriptures? Is it a soap opera? Is it a B-list movie? I mean, just what's happening there with the dysfunction between Laban and Jacob, Rachel and Leah. <sighs> but even looking at their stories that shaped his story, it reminds us that there are internalized narratives that we do live out of. So, so you look at the sibling rivalry between Leah and Rachel, Leah being the oldest. What the scriptures say in, in, in Genesis 29 is that when describing them, they talk about how Leah had soft eyes. And so they're putting this emphasis on her internal beauty and some internal attributes. And then they go to Rachel and they say, well, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And so she had this external beauty. And 
external beauty is easily noticed. We know that to be true because even Jacob, he saw her, he fell in love and he moved to want to marry her. But through the scheming of his father-in-law, he first had to marry uh, Leah without even knowing. And so now there's all of this conflict and dysfunction, Leah to Rachel, Leah to Jacob, Leah to her dad, Jacob to Rachel. It's just all there. But you got to see the internalized narrative and the pain and the brokenness that Leah is living out of because when you live life going unnoticed, there's this belief that starts to be built, which is the affirmation and affection of people is what I need to be valuable. And the affirmation and affection of people that I desire will make me whole. We know this because of how she even names her children. So she has a son first son, and she names him Reuben because she says, this is her reasoning. God has seen me in my affliction and he's given me a son and maybe now my husband will love me. And then she has another son and she names him Simeon, which means to hear. And this is her reasoning. God has heard me in my Hatred that people hate me. God has heard me and by giving me a son, maybe now people will love me, my husband specifically. Then she has a third son, Levi, which is to attach. And this is her reasoning that maybe now my husband will be attached to me because I've given him three sons. That is a mirror for so many of us to have this internalized narrative that drives us to build our lives around the attention and affection of people, but that's a black hole. People weren't built for that. People were built to move us towards greater self-discovery, to move us towards greater wholeness, but not to be the primary source of any of that, which is why Judah is rich and beautiful. Number four, this time I will praise the Lord. And Judah is reflecting something for us, which is first and foremost, God is worthy of praise regardless of the circumstances. And secondarily, we have the privilege and the responsibility to allow who God is to shape and build who we are. And I will praise him. Brokenness in that story, though, it's crazy. A mirror for many of us, but a mirror of how all of us, if we're not careful, could live in light of internalized narratives. We got to explore the stories at work in our lives so we could see how God might be working and join him in the process. Some considerations in closing. A mentor of mine would say this, and I just thought it was powerful. Crawford Loretz, he would say that the past may explain us, but it doesn't excuse us. 
And I think that is rich, that we explore, we journey inward and we start to ask questions. God, what's happened in my history with that showing up now? But it doesn't excuse us for responsibility. And even as we looked at even Leah and you're like, man, that's me. Like, yes, it's explainable, but but she still sinned and she was in need of a savior and God met her. He moved her towards health. Will you praise me, Judah? The past may explain us, but it doesn't excuse us. It provides an opportunity for us to grow, not a prison for us to live in and be trapped. But there's a statement that all of the people listed in Jesus's genealogy reveal. Which is that God is gracious through all of our dysfunction, man. That God is kind, he is generous, and he is gracious through every single one of our expressions of dysfunction. But not only is he that, God is faithful through all of our disregard. That all of these people at one point in time said no to God. Yet God said yes to them and he said, hey, there's so much in you. There's so much beauty in you that you're not even aware of. You have no clue what I'm doing inside of you. You have no clue what I'm going to do with you. But what you need to have a clue of is I want to weave your story into minds because minds will last forever. And you were designed for me to have the weight of my story come to bear on yours in a way that frees you, in a way that grows you, in a way that completes you. Moving you towards wholeness. And it's in that consideration that I want us to contemplate. I want us to just contemplate the ways God has been gracious to us in the midst of our dysfunction. To contemplate the ways that God is faithful in the midst of our disregard. And through that contemplation, to ask questions regarding our story. What are narratives that are shaping us? What are stories that are in our lives that we could trace? And how can we not stop with the stories themselves, but use them as a springboard to see the God who is, to explore the stories at work in how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to others is the task in front of us every day till the day we're face to face with God. Let's pray. God, um, you are kind and gracious and we need you. Would we not, um, would we not cave to the fear and or tenderness that journeying inward often can produce, nor would we be caught up in the lie that says we have to journey inward alone, that we would invite others into the process to just explore the story, explore what's going on, explore our history, and be connected well to you and the story that you're writing the one that you've been writing from eternity. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.